If I were to take a poll and ask the question, how many people in this room love drama? <laughs> some of you avoid it at all costs, and some of you love every second, especially when there's a good thread on someone's Facebook post. We all live to read, not all of us, but we live to read some of those comments. I know I can get uh, suckered into that and, you know, go pop a bag of popcorn and just be like, man, this is a good thread, okay? Hey, I'm being honest. <laughs> I'm being honest. But one particular drama we might enjoy is, is a story when someone is vindicated. Where we see stories like this unfold is courtroom dramas. It might be a story of someone wrongfully accused of murder or someone framed for a crime they did not commit and they spend time in prison and after years and years of fighting and trial after trial, they come out free and exonerated. We love a good drama that has twists and turns and the end result is justice for the innocent party. We love the time it takes to get there, the tears in between and to see the protagonist's face when they hear those words they have longed to hear, not guilty. So the courtroom has deep meaning. No matter when and where the story takes place, the courtroom represents laws, justice, fair trials, judges, juries, the guilty, and the innocent. But one overarching reality that the courtroom represents that most people might not see is that the earthly court the earthly courtroom is a shadow of where the judge of all the earth will one day sit. The author of Job sets the scene for us as we look at chapter 1, introducing to us the characters of the story, the problems, the suffering, and the sovereignty. The stage is set as we know, now know who Job is, the drama that unfolds, and the cosmic courtroom we are all afforded a glimpse of in the book of Job. Let's dive into chapter 1. If you would open up to Job chapter 1. And we're going we're gonna to take our time this morning and we're going to really go through Job chapter 1 verse by verse. Look at Job chapter 1 verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Now, I want you to see for just a second, there was a man, okay? There's nothing special about this man other than the favor that God gave this man. And here's what, here's what we need to know just about those first few words. There was a man. Here's what the author is trying to help us see is that this man named Job Okay, there's nothing special about him other than he was righteous because God gave him righteousness. God gave him favor. And here's, here's what we need to see what's special about this. Is that Job represents all of humanity. Job represents all of humanity as a man. Okay? So he was blameless and upright. This does not mean he was perfect or sinless, but a man of integrity and high character. He feared God, and he turned away from evil, okay? So for him to, to fear God and to turn away from evil, that means he has an awe or a reverence of God as his maker. And, and also he saw God as holy, that if he, if he turned away from evil, who did he turn to? Okay, look at me for just a moment. 
if, if Job turned away from evil, okay, who was he turning to? He was turning to God, okay? Now think about all of his possessions. As we, as we read verses 1 through 5, this is what the author is trying to help us see, is that Job has a lot to lose, okay? Let's look at that. Job chapter 1, verse 2. There was born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. So that this man was the, the greatest of all the people of the East. So, what we need to see about all of his possessions is that Job has a lot to lose. Okay, I was having this conversation with one of my kids the other day, and I was, I was talking to them about how we live here in the United States of America. Just here in the West, in the United States of America, we are among the top 1% of the whole world. There are, peop there are people overseas who live on less than a dollar a day. Can you imagine living on less than a dollar a day? Okay, we pay almost $3 a gallon for gas. Okay, and we could have all kinds of conversations. Well, that's not our fault. This is this person's fault. It doesn't matter. You still pay it to get around. Or think about the coffee that you buy. I, I buy coffee, and it, sometimes it costs me $5. Okay? We cannot live, here in the United States, we cannot live for a dollar a day. Okay? So we are among the top 1%. And what the author is trying to help us see here is that Job has a lot to lose. He has a lot of cattle, and he has the perfect number of children. If you look, he has seven males as sons who would carry on the family business, and he has three females that equals ten. And the number ten is an important number in the Bible. It's like this whole number, okay? So Job has a whole number of children. That's what the author is trying to help us see. It's a sign of God's favor on his life. And the offerings he, he offered for his children showed his priestly office as the patriarch of his family. He prayed passionately for his children. Okay, let me stop right here. Let me just, let me say this. For those of you with kids in the room, how many of us spend time praying passionately for our children? Maybe when we're going throughout the day and we're making their bed, okay, I, I don't make my kids' beds anymore, but if, if we're doing their laundry or if we're making their lunch, are we spending time praying for our children that God would place kindling around their hearts and one, one day would ignite that by the Holy Spirit and would save them one day? How many of us, like Job, are praying passionately for our kids? And look at verse 5. Job chapter 1, verse 5, it says, if I can see it, sorry, I'm having a hard time seeing. And when the days of the feast of their children had run their course, Job would sin and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. So there was 10 of them. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Look at James in the New Testament. Look at James chapter 5, verse 11. 
This is the half-brother of Jesus speaking here. James chapter 5, verse 11. It says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of who? Of Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. If, the, if, if verse 5 is doing anything, it's waving this massive flag to get our attention to denounce the idea that Job deserved all of this suffering for some kind of wrong that he did. Okay? And, and for some reason, look at me for just a moment. There are preachers who preach this garbage, who say that if there's something wrong going in your life, there's something wrong happening in your life, that you deserve it. Okay, now let me, let me take a step back and say this. Can you inflict suffering in your own life? Yes, because if you act like a fool, you get sinful results. But if you are someone who is turning away from evil and constantly spending time in God's word and you are doing your best to repent of sin and look to Christ at all times and suffering comes to your life, there are preachers who say, well, maybe you just don't have enough faith. And here's what the story of Job dispels for us is that Job had enough faith because God gave him the faith. God gave him the righteousness. God gave him the favor. We see that in these first five verses. And still, suffering came. So it dispels the idea that you are doing something. There's some kind of secret sin that you have in your life. And if you just had enough faith, God would take that suffering away. And here's what's true about the church in America. And this, this is true for me too. When any kind of suffering comes in my life, I look for the shortest way out. I look for the shortest route to get out of that suffering. Instead of taking a step back and asking the question, God, what are you doing in this season of my life? How are you making me more like your son Jesus in this time? And I'll tell you guys, there has been plenty of times in my own life in the life of my family where I think, well, I can just do these things and I can just add these few things up and maybe God will give me some favor because I'm doing enough good things. But God, God's economy does not work that way. God will bring suffering upon the people of his life, uh, upon his people, excuse me, the lives of his people to make them more like Jesus. So let's read on. In Job chapter 1, verses 6 through 12, I'm not going to read all these, but I want us to see the characters that are involved here. We already know about Job. We know about how much stuff he has, how much stuff he has to lose, uh, his children, and all these things that he does. Now we see a few other characters come into the picture. The scene shifts from earth to heaven. This is one of the few times in Scripture that we get to see what's taking place in the heavens. So in verse 6, who are the sons of God? You may have asked yourself this question. Who, who are the sons of God in verse 6? The way this text speaks of them is angels, just to put it plainly. We could try to do all kinds of theological brain work and all these things, and who are the sons of God? We could look at Psalm 110, Psalm 8, all kinds of places in the Old Testament, and even in the New Testament. 
But really what the text, it's not answering this question other than who the sons of God bring with them. Okay? Let's look at this. Job chapter 1, verse 6. Now there is a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and the Satan. Okay? This is, this is the way it's ma- meant to be said is the Satan or Satan. Also came among them. Verse 7. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Okay, so we've answered the question, who are the sons of God? They are obviously ushering this this evil person into the presence of God. Okay, he has to be ushered in with them. Okay, and then we see this character Satan, who represents all of evil. And what Satan means is basically just a title for the adversary or the accuser, one who is opposed not only to God, but is opposed to Job. Okay, remember in my intro, I talked about the courtroom setting. We like these courtroom dramas, okay? And what the author is trying to help us see in these few verses, in these six verses, is that there is a courtroom setting here. The judge of all the earth is seated on his throne firmly. No one can remove him. The sons of God bring this evil person into his presence. And they begin to have this conversation. God and Satan. Okay? They begin to have this conversation. God asks him from where he has come. And he responds arrogantly, kind of like a teenager in rebellion. From going to and fro on the earth. And from walking up and down it. I'm kind of, Satan here is saying, I've just kind of been doing whatever I want. I've just been kind of walking to and fro on the earth. Kind of just like, you know, like Conor McGregor. You know, just kind of strutting my stuff and doing whatever I want up and down on the earth. He's, he is boasting about his short-lived dominion. God has given Satan somewhat of a dominion. Paul calls him in the New Testament the prince of the power of the air. In Ephesians chapter 6, we see that we are fighting a battle that is not an earthly battle. It is, it is a, a battle of spiritual being waged in the spirit, in the spirit world. Okay, That's what we see taking place. Then we get to verses 8 and 12. This conversation that totally changes Job's life between God and Satan. And, and listen to me. Job is not a part of this conversation. Do you see that? It is between God and Satan. Okay? I want to look at this, verse 8. Verse 8 says, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God, fears me, and turns away from evil? Okay, put your finger there for just a minute. Circle it, underline it, whatever you want to do, highlight it. Verse 8. God himself is the one who tells Satan, have you thought about this guy? Have you thought about this guy? It's not Satan saying, hey, what about your servant Job? You know, you've, you've kind of protected him, and we're going to see a little bit of that. He tries to do this manipulation thing with God. But God is the one who says, have you thought of my servant Job? 
He is the one who speaks to Satan about his servant. He is blameless. He is upright. He turns away from evil. He fears me. Have you thought about him? And then we see in verse 9 that Satan responds with a question, okay? And if you're, if you're a parent in this room, you might have done this. When you already know the answer one of your kids are going to give you, what do you usually start with? A question, right? Did you do this to your sibling? Did you do these things? You already know the answer. But here, what Satan is doing when he's, an- when he's asking these questions to God He's acting like God doesn't already know. God knows all things. All wisdom is held in him. He already knows the end from the beginning. And Satan starts to ask God questions. This is an indictment on Job from the accuser or Satan. His question to God about Job is leading us into verses 10 and 11. Look at verses 10 and 11. Of Job chapter 1. It says, Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand, he tells God, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. So look at these, these just these short phrases that Satan uses. He says, Have you not? And you have blessed. You have kept Job for this long. But lift your hands of protection off of Job and see that he curses you to your face. All because you have blessed him with things. Anything that he touches is blessed. Anything that he does is just good. You know, have you ever been around a person like that? They're just kind of good at everything. They can, like, fix anything. Okay, that's not true in my house. Okay, they can fix anything or, or anything they kind of put their hands to is blessed. That was Job. And Satan here is saying, if you remove your hand of protection on him, okay, if you remove your hand of protection on him, see that once that happens, Job will curse you to your face. This is a, a good moment to stop and to get gospel, okay, for all of us. We're a gospel-centered church. We focus ourselves, our lives on the gospel. Here's what I want you to see. The very breath that you breathe is of grace. The synapses in your brain that are going off are all because of God. The blood coursing through your veins and your heart pumping the way it does is all of grace. Your eyes blinking, your body the way it works, your mind thinking, you doing whatever you do throughout the day is all of grace. Nothing comes to us. And this is even true for the unbeliever. The person who is not in Christ, there is such a thing as common grace that God gives all of humanity. Justice reigns on both the unbeliever and the believer. So this is a good moment for us to remember that everything we have is of grace. Can you, can you just take a step back and think about that? Your house, your family, your job, your cars, the clothes you have on your back, the very breath that you breathe in is all of grace, is given to us by God. It is all a gift. And here's what's true about our world today. 
is there, there's, this, there's this banner that flies over people that says, I'm a self-made person. No one helped me. No one helped me get into college. No one helped me through high school. No one helped me do all of these things. But if we truly took a step back and we knew who God was and his infinite worth, we would know that it is all of grace. It is all of grace. Look at verse 12. God gives permission to Satan to do what he has to do to Job. I love the way Martin Luther, I love, I love the way he calls Satan. He says, Satan is God's Satan. Satan belongs to God. Martin Luther also used to say that Satan is on a very short leash. He's on a very short leash, and he can only affect the life of the believer the way God allows it to happen. Let's move on. Job chapter 1, starting in verse 13, we see Job's first terrible day. What begins in verse 13 can seem like Job's worst day ever. As in rapid succession, all of his belongings, his precious, his precious children, excuse me, are taken away. These verses, as much as Job experienced, are meant to suffocate us. Okay? They are meant to suffocate us. So if we look at these verses, we see first Job's oxen and his donkeys, the way he runs his land. Okay? They are expensive and they're necessary for how Job lived his life. Satan uses a certain people to kill his servants. And, and listen to me for just a moment. Job probably loved his servants too. He probably took care of his servants. And the Bible says that he had many servants. He loved his servants. And these people come and they steal his cattle. And one of his servants actually gets away and tells Job this report. All of your oxen, all of your cattle has been stolen and I was the only one who got away. They actually ended up killing your servants too. Next are the sheep. Okay, so we've got oxen and donkeys. They're expensive. But then we move to the sheep. And they're really expensive. Okay, because that's how you get wool and all kinds of things. And the servant comes, as this other servant is speaking, this other servant comes and says that a, a, an act of God happened. Lightning fell from, from the sky and killed all of your sheep and the servants that were tending to them. Okay? So we've got oxen and donkeys, and then we've got sheep, and the servants are, are dying here too. And then after that, camels are taken. The camels are stolen by the Chaldeans, okay? And this is, this is what this is... This, the author's trying to help us see this, okay? You're like, Ricky, why are you spending so much time talking about animals? Oxen and donkey are expensive. Sheep are more expensive. And camels are priceless because they have to travel that way to go trade and do things like that. So here's what the author's trying to help us see. They're expensive. They're more expensive. They're really expensive. And then come the children. They're priceless. The author's trying to suffocate us with all the news that's coming. This servant got away. I was the only one to get away and tell you. I was the only one to get away and tell you. I was the only one to get away and tell you. And then the last servant comes and says that a wind came and knocked down the house of your children where they all ten of them were and all ten of your children are dead. Now, 
Let me, let me be as sensitive as possible. I have three kids of my own. I can't imagine, number one, getting the news that some of my servants, okay, back in this day, some of my servants and my cattle, the way I did my business, was gone in rapid succession. But then to get the news that the 10 kids that I love dearly have all died. This is the part that we dread. This, just these few verses are what we dread. If you're a parent in this room, what we dread about the book of Job is that God took Job's children. Can you imagine the, the enormity of the grief that you would feel? You can't imagine losing one child, but can you imagine losing all ten in the same day? We are meant to be absolutely suffocated by these verses. Remember, we just, we, it was heavy on our minds yesterday, 20 years ago, planes crashing into the Twin Towers and into the Pentagon and in that field in Pennsylvania. And those almost 3,000 people that died and those brave men and women that ran towards danger to save who they could. This is what Job is meant to help us feel is, is that this was such a terrible situation all happening to one person who represents all of humanity. Let's look at the last few verses that Tasha read for us. This last scene in, in chapter 1. This is ground zero. This is after all of the dust settles. The news has been delivered and Job is left penniless, childless, and breathless. But Job does a few things that, that need to get our, our, our attention about his response. Look at Job chapter 1 verse 20. Then Job arose. If we go back to verses 1 through 5, what did Job do to make a sacrifice? He arose. That is his first act of worship, that Job arises, that he rose in the midst of unbearable grief. Job arises. Let's read on. Then Job arose and he tore his robe, and he shaved his head, and fell on the ground, and worshipped. So Job arises, that's his first act of worship. Then he tore his robe, and what this represents back in that day, if you were, to tear, if you were in such terrible grief, you would literally rip your clothes off of your body, and what that represented was your heart being torn in two. And then you shaving your head, or like Job did here, is that he literally wanted his head to be decapitated from his body because he could not experience the amount of grief that he felt in that moment. So Job arises to worship. He rips his clothes, representing that his heart had been torn to shreds, and shaves his head, showing that he wants to be dead. And then we need to see this, that Job falls on the ground. And here's what this represents for us. As Job falls to the ground, 
he makes a nonverbal statement of remembering that he is made of dust and to dust he will one day return. Look at verse 21. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Here's what he says. He says, I owned nothing when God made me, and I will return to him the same way. God gives and God takes in both. May he be glorified. That's what Job says here. If you know anything about my story, I know we have some visitors in here, but my dad passed in November of 2020. He had dementia and Parkinson's disease and literally laid in a bed for, for months, wouldn't eat any food, wouldn't drink any water, until finally his brain ended up killing him. My mom came to visit us. Uh, my mom was his primary caretaker for six years, you know, as he got worse and worse and worse until he couldn't do anything for himself. And one, uh, my mom came to visit us. I went to pick her up, and then her and I went back. I took her back just a few weeks ago, and we got to spend about nine hours on the road together. And I asked her, you know, I didn't get to be there the night that he passed away. Um, and I asked her, I said, Mom, what did you do? Like, what, tell, take me through the night of when Dad passed away. They knew it was coming. The nurses had come in, and they were prepping her, and they're like, he's probably going to die tonight. And he was breathing very heavy, wasn't responding or anything like that. And my mom said that she left the room for a minute. She left the room for a minute to answer the door because someone had come to the house, some family member. And as she was walking to the hall, through the hallway back to where my dad was in his hospital bed, my dad took one last breath in and released. And he died. And I said, Mom, what did you do right after Dad took his last breath? She said, I looked at everyone with tears in my eyes, and we held hands around his bed, and we sang an old Spanish song that we sang in, his ch in, in the church that he pastored. And the words say, Tu fidelidad es grande. Tu fidelidad incomparable es. It, it, all that means is, your faithfulness is steadfast. My mom led the people in worship over my dad's dead body. Her reaction in the moment of her greatest loss to the person she had been married to for 46 years was to worship. And here we see Job losing everything that he has. And his reaction is not to hit his knees and question God. But he hits his knees, and he falls on his face, and he worships. And his response for us, we see it. We, we see his response in verse 21. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Now let me ask you this question. If you were in the place of Job, if you were in the place of my mom, would your reaction be to worship? I want to say, even as a pastor, well, yeah, you know, I'm a pastor. That's what I'm supposed to do. But is our reaction, is our response in the moment of our deepest, greatest loss, 
to worship. And here's where I want to conclude our time. The great, jo- the great judge vindicates Job. Remember our courtroom setting. Satan's subtle accusation of Job that the only reason he loved God was because he gave him stuff. And Job is not the one worthy of worship here. God is. God was so supremely valuable to Job that even in this horrific of a tragedy, Job knew this was not the end. There would be an end to all of his suffering, either in this life or the next. Job was confident in the coming Messiah, a promised Messiah. I want to encourage you with this, and we're going to end our time. First Peter, if you would look at First Peter in the New Testament. First Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 6. The Apostle Peter says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now flip over to the last book, Revelation chapter 21. I want us to see this picture before we end our time. Revelation 21 starting in verse 3. John the Revelator says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Church, I need to tell you this. That nothing is promised in this life. A life of ease is not promised to us. But what is promised to us as the people of God is what's coming one day. Your, your life might not have turned out the way you would. You, you would have thought it turned out. But what's coming is a promised life with the Lord Jesus. That he will one day make his appearance and all the world will know who King Jesus is. And he will come to collect his church. So I want to ask you this morning, if you, are, you don't consider yourself a Christian in this room, you're like, I, I, don't, I don't have time for this, this is, you know, this, just kind of here because someone brought me here, whatever it is. Where is your treasure? What is, where do you find your value? If you find your value on things that will one day pass away, then your treasure is misplaced. And for the people of God, I want to ask you the same question. Where is your treasure? Is your treasure found in Christ and Christ alone? That even if as something as horrific happened to your life as Job, 
would your treasure be intact? And here's what I want to offer to both of us. That if we find our treasure in earthly things, that we repent of our sin, we look away from those things, and we look to Christ, the only one who can satisfy us. I'm asking you to put your faith in him, to come to know him, to come to love him. For he is the only one who will satisfy you in this life and in the next. Let's pray.